You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany sermon series, Finished, The End of the World and Our Way of Living in It. In this series, we see that the powers and principalities of this world are finished, and our depraved way of living in this world is finished. Christ leads us into a new way of being human, and eventually, an entirely new creation. Let's hear the word of the Lord. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence, and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from his goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink, or a stranger and show you hospitality, or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, away with you, you cursed ones into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry, and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked, and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. Then they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison, and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth, when you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It is good to see you guys. My name is Jonah, and I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting with us, welcome. If you're at home tucked up in your jammies in bed, welcome. Uh, It's good to be with you guys. Uh, That's a pretty intense passage. If you were listening, we're going to talk about the end of the world. Say, yeah. (laughs) Lukewarm response, I would say. Uh, So I'm going to start with some good news. Can I share a little bit of good news first? You guys have got capacity for good news? A little bit on the front? Okay. Uh, So first... Oh, Ryan and Tatiana Marsh. Ryan is on staff with us. They welcomed their first child this week. So we prayed for them. And uh, thanks be to God, we will celebrate new life. So I hope you guys are at home enjoying the new baby. We're very thankful for you guys. And also, he's here, Travis McGowan, ladies and gentlemen. Y'all know Travis. Travis is one of our pastors. Yeah, they're going to applaud just because you're here. We just wanted to applaud because he's alive. That's it. That's all we're saying. Um, Now, so if you guys remember back in the fall, 
uh, we sent Travis out, so to speak. We gave him a break to step down from his responsibilities here at the church for a period of time. And a big motivator behind that was so he could prepare for some professional advancements. He had some tests to take to become a certified behavioral analyst. And after much prayer and trial and study and preparation, Travis aced the test yesterday. So way to go. He did it. He did the thing. I'm so proud of you. Uh, So if you would like your behavior analyzed, uh, talk to Travis if you can afford it. Because now, you know, when you get numbers after your name, the hourly rate goes up, you guys. So, uh, but seriously, Travis, you're a gift to us and we're proud of you for your work. And uh, yeah, he's a gift to our whole area. He, well, I could talk a lot about Travis, but um, if you're at home watching this, send him a text message and uh, tell him congratulations. And afterwards, I was going to say go hug him, but that would be weird. That kind of defeats this, the purpose of our socially distanced gatherings. Uh, do what's in your conscience to do to uh, congratulate him. So yeah. Um, and I also, you know, I know I'm kind of a silly, jokey guy. I'm genuinely proud of him. Um, and I also just kind of wanted to take a moment at the, at the beginning of this service and try to name what feels to me an elephant in the room. And maybe you all don't actually feel it. Maybe it's one of those things that the pastors hear about more than the congregation hears about. Uh, and I just want to kind of name it and acknowledge it for a minute. Um, it's been difficult, I think, for most of us, if not all of us, over the last year to know what does it mean to be the church. Uh, that's a phrase that we talk about for the last 20 years or so at Sojourn, we're going to be the church. And there's many reasons why it's difficult to know what it means to be the church right now. Uh, we haven't been with each other in so long. Um, very few of our community groups meet in person anymore. Uh, obviously, if you're here in this room, this is not what historically a gathering looks like. Um, and that's been very, very, very difficult, uh, compounded by the anxiety of, do we gather and potentially get the virus? Do we gather and give grandma the virus? And there's been such polarizing opinions on either side of that on how do we handle the pandemic well. Um, there's been racial unrest in our country that we haven't all agreed on. We haven't agreed on what it is. We haven't agreed on why it is. And we haven't agreed on what should we do about it. Um, there's been a political season where not many of us have all agreed on what's going on and is it good and is it bad and what should we do about it. Uh, our regular professional lives have been very difficult. Um, family's been difficult and there's just been so many losses and so many anxieties and they've just compounded one another. And I recognize that for many, another difficulty has been the sermons over the last several months. Uh, the sermons have been hard. Some of that is because we don't all agree on what we're talking about here. Some have felt singled out, uh, that we focused inordinately on one group of people. Other folks have felt like we didn't talk strongly or directly enough to the issues of the day. So one side says that we're talking about it too much and too directly, and another side says we should come out more strongly. There's been frustrations on both sides, on pretty much all of these issues that I've already laid out. Um, and if I don't know how impressed you guys are with Sojourn or feel like we have some kind of secret agenda or technique, but I will lay all of it bare to you now. We're basically a simple Bible church uh, where we take a book of the Bible and we try to do our best to preach faithfully to it or through it. Um, when we set out to preach through the Gospel of Matthew, we knew that this section in particular would be difficult, uh, here from 23 to the end of Matthew. And why is that? Well, Jesus is cursing people. Did you see that? 
Remember that a couple of weeks ago? Jesus is cursing the Pharisees. And it's hard to have kind of like a bubbly, uplifting sermon when the God of the universe is cursing religious elites. Uh, we're talking about the end of the world, um, the destruction and judgment of the world. Uh, we're talking about the end of all things, which makes for hard sermons in the midst of an already hard year. Um, in some ways, I wish this morning would be different. Uh, but here we are in Matthew chapter 25, and we're going to talk about Judgment Day today, which is a sobering reality. We're entering into the most painful, most confusing portion of Jesus's life. And so if you're one of the people who felt like the sermons have been difficult, um, I just want you to know they probably will continue to feel so. Um, but I want to remind us all of two things. First, and we say this often, every crucifixion leads to resurrection. If we try to get to a resurrection without going through the crucifixion, we will miss out. And second, I, I want to remind you guys that Easter is coming. We're, we're just a few weeks from Easter, and amidst all the difficulty and the hardness, we know how our story ends. Um, we don't, as a church, want to use the Scriptures to cause undue harm to people. We don't want to use the Scriptures as a weapon to cause unnecessary pain in people's lives. And at the same time, we don't want to minimize the difficult truths revealed to us in the scriptures. And I'm not trying to say we handle this tension well or perfectly. I'm acknowledging its attention and it's difficult. And I'm thankful that we can try to navigate it together. So one of the greatest themes in the scriptures, and I would argue in the gospel of Matthew, is God's inviting fatherly heart that his discipline is always motivated by love and a desire for restoration and reconciliation. He's patient and he's passionate in his pursuit of you and of us, continually wooing and inviting. It's kind of a ridiculous exercise, but if someone asked me, what would you summarize Jesus's ministry with in the Gospel of Matthew? Or if you could sum up the, the, the message of Matthew in one word, what would it be? And I think a fair shot would be the word come. And that's Jesus' invitation, come to me. Come, all you who are weary, and you will find rest. Come and follow me. Come. But as we get here to the end of Matthew, we're shown and we're told that there will come a day when the door will be closed and the invitation will be over. Here at the end of it all, Jesus ends his public teaching with a word of judgment. This is his last public teaching. And he says this in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. The humble carpenter returns to sit on a throne. The refugee returns as a king. The one who first came under a cloud of obscurity returns in a bright blaze of glory. The one who says, come to me, will on that day say, and now be judged by me. There is a day coming, church, when there will be no doubt about who Jesus of Nazareth truly is. Verse 32, all the nations will be gathered in his presence, and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Make no mistake, no one will be exempt from this judgment. 
No one is exempt from the judgment of King Jesus. All nations, all peoples, all tribes, all tongues will be separated before the king. To his right will go the righteous, which in this story he calls his sheep, and to the left will go the goats, the unrighteous. Listen to the difference between these two groups, verses 34 through 36. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. So first, the, the judgment is a judgment of separation. Two groups are created or are distinguished. Sheep to one side, goats to the other. Righteous to one side, unrighteous to the other. One goes to eternal life and the other goes to eternal fire. And it I didn't know this until getting ready for this sermon, but in Jesus's day, it wasn't obvious which animal in a herd was a goat and which one was a sheep. They looked very, very similar. It wasn't like today where a sheep is big, puffy, and white, and goats are, I don't know, eating tin cans at the petting zoo or something like that. They looked almost identical. You needed a master shepherd that could distinguish the difference, who knew his flock well and knew the differences between a goat and a sheep. A master shepherd who knows his flock is required for the separation, which means for us who are in the flock, we need not spend energy trying to decipher who is in or who is out. It may not be obvious to us who's a sheep and who is a goat. And let the reader understand this. I'm off my notes already seven minutes into the sermon. But how much energy do we spend trying to decipher who is in and who is out? How much energy do you see people who claim the name of Christ making the call, who is in and who is out? And at Judgment Day, it will not be us who are making that call. It will be the master shepherd, the one who truly knows the difference between a sheep and a goat. The point here is that Jesus is the one doing the separating, not us. The point of Jesus' end times teaching is to invite us into a life of preparation so that we might be counted amongst the righteous on Judgment Day. The point of his teaching is not to give us power to assess others, but rather he might give us tools to assess ourselves. So let's think about these people mentioned here for a minute, the ones that the righteous have cared for. The hungry or thirsty, these would be people in emergency situations without the basics of survival. This would be providing emergency relief. People think of maybe some natural disaster has happened. Something has happened and they don't have the basics. Jesus says the righteous are the ones who have met the needs of those people in those kinds of circumstances. Stranger, the stranger, we we preached on this several weeks ago, but the stranger is is a big category of person that shows up often in the scriptures. Um, For us, when you see stranger, think of refugee, think of immigrant. The righteous invited those people in. What does that mean that they invited them in? Think advocacy. Think friendship, providing the necessities for a new life in a new place. Naked in the scriptures, this would be the poorest of the poor. For us, it's it's pretty equivalent to the idea of a homeless person. So they provide physical relief for them. Visit prisoners. 
The righteous provide a sense of comfort and encouragement to people in prison. The sick here is exactly what we think of. Think about the emotional and physical realities represented here in what Jesus has said. It is a stunningly exhaustive list. Jesus is saying that the righteous moved towards the vulnerable. They moved towards the hurting. They moved towards the needy, and they took care of all they were as a person, their physical needs, their emotional needs, their spiritual needs. And Jesus intensifies this teaching here by identifying himself with those people. When the righteous ask him, when did they ever see Jesus this way? Here's his response in verse 40. I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. He's saying that someone's attitude towards these people reveals their attitude towards Christ himself. It's the judgment being taught here, the judgment we are being warned about here is almost breathtakingly revolutionary. If you want to know what someone really thinks about Jesus, if you want to know where your heart truly stands, uh, how you really feel about God, how do you feel about the homeless? How do you feel about the poor? How do you feel about refugees and immigrants? How do you feel about sick? How do you feel about the incarcerated? That's who Jesus is identifying with here. Pastor Tim Keller summarizes the lesson here from one of his books called Generous Justice. He says, believers, that's Christians, should be opening their homes and purses to each other, drawing even the poorest and most foreign into their homes and community, giving financial aid, medical treatment, shelter, advocacy, active love, support, and friendship. This is the lifestyle of those who on Judgment Day will be called righteous. All of this flows from a love for Jesus and a desire to serve Jesus. It's a willingness, it's a longing to see the face of Christ in the face of the most vulnerable. And this is a sharp contrast to what Jesus says about the Pharisees, the religious elites of the day. Shortly before this teaching here, he had said to the Pharisees back in chapter 23, He says, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. So he's saying you take all of these minutia in the law and act like they're the most important thing, and you totally ignore what is most important in the law of God, justice, mercy, and faith. Those who take Jesus seriously and his coming judgment seriously know what is most important in following him, a life of justice, mercy, and faith. And what does that look like exactly? It could look like a lot of things. In, in some ways, it looks like Christians from our church Filling a food box at the corner of our property to keep the poorest of our neighbors fed during an awful year. If you haven't paid any attention to that, I encourage you sometime, just go park on the corner with your heat on, sit in your car and watch the constant cycle of people 
coming through that. How many people, that's one of their primary sources of food. And, and where is that coming from? Members coming together and making sure that there is food in that box every day. It, it looks like Christians from our church holding a Bible study with ex-convicts who don't feel comfortable coming to church. People that we wouldn't want to be seen with, people we would feel uncomfortable with if they showed up in here, and people who know that that's how Christians feel about them. So there's a member from our church who gathers with them because they're not welcomed here. It looks like a member from our church who, at least before the pandemic, would go to White Castle at 4 a.m. once a week to, to buy a hot meal for homeless people and hear more of their stories. It looks like members from our church who travel to South Louisville to pay, play soccer with refugees so that they might feel a little bit more at home in our city. It looks like our church paying for electric bills during cold winter. It looks like our church paying for car repairs for single moms, furnishing apartments for addicts pursuing recovery, buying hundreds of lunches for nurses during a pandemic, befriending elderly in nursing homes. It looks like a church providing free tutoring for low-income children to help them get ready for first grade, a church giving nearly $25,000 to try to provide warm housing for the homeless in our community. It looks like a church gathering every day at noon for a year to learn how to pray. In, in many ways, what does this look like? It looks like what we're doing as a church. It's just not flashy. It's just not always obvious. Can you see how little the ministries Jesus describes here are? How easy to miss and easy to overlook? When over here, when the rock star gathers a million people to sing and do all these flashy things for Jesus, it makes the headlines. But when a church steadily feeds its neighborhood for a year, it's easy to overlook. It's small Christians following a big God to take care of people that matter so much to him. There are, I grant you, many questions that this passage raises. I'd be happy to talk to you about it at another time. But one thing from this passage is crystal clear. Jesus has shown us what the righteous look like. They've responded to his invitation to come to him, and they've responded to his invitation to follow him. So we go where Jesus went, to the overlooked, to the vulnerable, to the needy, to the outsider, and we love him, them, the way he has loved us. And I think there's a really sad reason why this is so difficult for us. Let me tell you a story. Once upon a time, I was the operator of a hot dog stand in the panhandle of Florida. I have pictures to prove this. Um, for a special love offering, I will send you those pictures. Until then, I will leave them to myself. Um, I, I would basically stand in the middle of a town. I mean, it wasn't quite the middle, but it was maybe 50 yards off the beach. Just try to imagine what you think the, the Garden of Eden would look like if it had kind of like Mediterranean architecture you know, like gas lanterns and white stucco houses. It's the most beautiful place I've ever been in my life. And I would stand by the beach and I would sell hot dogs to rich people. Uh, because if you've got kids, grab your hot dog, go eat right down at the beach instead of going in and paying obnoxious amounts of money for a sit down. You just want to be, a, you got to get the business plan, 
you get the idea. Rich people want to stay at the beach, so I'll sell them hot dogs. And I became adept at identifying the worthiness of a customer based on the quality of their swimsuit or the quality of their sunglasses, because that's the tell, right? Rich people are going to have, you know, I don't know, silk swimsuits on, and they're going to have like Maui Jim sunglasses. And if somebody comes up with like, you know, messed up gas station sunglasses, it's like, here's your hot dog, sir. But if someone comes up with Maui Jims and they, you know, they're, whatever, they're, they're linen coverall, or, you know, then I'm like, how's your day, sir? Blah, 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 blah. You know, I'm become more friendly and cheery because maybe I might get a better tip because rich people tend to have more money and if you butter them up, they'll, they'll give you more tips. So that's what I did for uh, some time. Trying to get a good tip on my $5 hot dogs. Uh, one day, a man, <laughs> I can see this so clearly in my eye, you guys. Uh, the houses were real close together, and every so often there'd be an alley between the house. And out of one of the alleys, this man in ripped up cargo shorts comes stumbling out. He had like a tie-dye shirt on with big holes in it. It looked like he had just gotten a swirly. Um, if you don't know what a swirly is, I'll tell you after. His hair was crazy. His beard was all over the place, and he starts walking up to the hot dog stand. And I'm like, the last thing I need around all these pretentious rich people is a homeless dude stumbling up to talk to me at my hot dog stand. You don't have to raise your hand, but you know that feeling when you see a homeless person and you have that, like, please don't talk to me vibe? Or if I don't look at him, maybe he won't acknowledge me. You ever walked into a a sporting event and they're sitting out there and you're like, maybe if I just pretend like they don't exist. But he walks right to me in his broken down sandals. And I honestly just wished he would go away. I wished that uh, I wouldn't be seen with him because it's probably going to be bad for business. Um, I gave him a hot dog so he would leave me alone. In essence, I said, if I give you this hot dog, will you go away? Uh, I did, and he did. And as he's walking away, my dad comes walking up to me. And he said, whoa, do you know who that guy was? And I was like, Jimmy Homeless over here? Yeah, he's the guy who was bothering me at my hot dog stand. And my dad told me this man's name. And he told me the name of the oil company that he was the chief financial officer for for the last 30 years. And he told me the address of the 10 million or so dollar house he had just bought in the neighborhood. It turns out that this guy was the wealthiest man I've ever met in my whole life. Initially, I panicked. And my first thought was, I blew a huge tip. If I had treated this guy better, oh my gosh, what about future business opportunities? Because I totally blew this guy off. And it wasn't until that night that I felt conviction and shame in my soul. I treated this man differently because of the way he looked. I treated him differently because of the way I thought he would make me look. I treated him differently because I didn't think I could get anything out of him. This man would go on to become a good friend. He would go on to pay for part of my seminary education. He still calls me every so often to tell me he's praying for me and that he's proud of me. He responded to my arrogance and my pride with grace, with friendship, and with generosity. When we, 
When we only view people by what they can do for us, we miss the face of Christ. Because Christ did not come to us so he could get something from us or because of all that we could do for him. He came to us because he loved us and he wanted us to be a part of his family. He's responded to our indifference by entering into our suffering. He's responded to our arrogance by dying in our place. He's responded to our doubts by raising from the dead. The wealthiest man in the universe came near to us and we turned him away. And yet he's responded to our pride with grace, with friendship, and with generosity. So he says to all people, come to me, follow me. If we're willing to see our neediness, we'll see the ways that Christ draws near to us, how he saved us, rescued us, and carried us, and that will fill us with a desire to see his face. And Jesus has told us where we can find it. People who seem like they can do nothing for us, just like we could do nothing for God. But imagine what might happen if we cultivated the expectation that the closer we get to the margins, the closer we get to the vulnerable and the needy, the closer we get to the face of Christ. Those who hear Jesus' first come and follow him into a life of discipleship are the ones who will hear Jesus' final come and follow him into his eternal kingdom. Those who neglect the weightier matters of the law, those who refuse to find Jesus in the face of the vulnerable, those who refuse to embrace the Beatitudes and to enter into a life of small ministries that are easy to overlook, they will face the judgment of the king. There will be a temptation to do what I did and put ourselves in the place of judge. But Christ has shown us what righteousness looks like now. Will we follow him there? He has invited you to follow him. Will you? Will you prepare for the day of great separation by living a life of faith, of mercy, and of justice, of knowing how little you have and how much you need and how generously Christ has provided for you? Will you go and care for others as if you were caring for Christ himself, thinking not of what they can do for you, but out of a desire to serve your king? Today, he's inviting you to come to him. He's inviting you to follow him. So I plead with you to respond now, because a day is coming where your choice will be over. The door will no longer be opened if you knock. You will no longer choose which direction you go. You will be separated, and the king will decide. So while you can, come to Jesus and follow him. We remember what makes this possible by grounding ourselves in the Lord's Supper every week, where we remember the night Jesus was betrayed. He took a loaf of bread, thanked God for it, and broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way, when the meal was over, he took a cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant sealed with the shedding of my blood. Drink this as often as you gather in remembrance of me. 
Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.